turn to Exodus chapter 10. As you're doing that, I want to mention two other things. But Exodus chapter 10 will be our text this morning, continuing through our sermon series in the book of Exodus. I want to mention two things, remind you that we have a sign-up sheet out in the foyer for our uh, flocks, home Bible studies that will start after Labor Day. So if you would like to be a part of those, please sign up. Even if you've done them before, uh, please sign up new. Um, and we've got some options there about what you would prefer about uh, Sunday or a weekday, a teaching flock, which would, means there would be a Bible study as part of it, or uh, just a fellowship uh, Bible study or, or fellowship flock. So check that out if you would like to be a part of those. They'll be starting after Labor Day. The second thing I want to note, uh, and I'm going to embarrass them in front of everybody, uh, Nathan and Brittany Anchorman and their son Atticus are getting ready to move to Arizona. Uh, they've been a part of our church for a couple years now and uh, just wanted to let the church know uh, to say goodbye to them and to let them know uh, from our church how much we love them and will miss them. So we love you guys. Go say goodbye to Nathan and Brittany uh, before they head out. All right. What was that? Oh, an Atticus. Oh, Linda, Whitehead's going with him. All right. I didn't know that little wrinkle. Okay. Hopefully, that's not news to Nathan and Brittany. All right. Exodus chapter ten, starting in verse one. The Holy Spirit says this. Then Yahweh said to Moses, "Go into Pharaoh." For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this land. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve Yahweh your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to Yahweh. But he said to them, Yahweh be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve Yahweh. 
for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and Yahweh brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt." Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with Yahweh your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with Yahweh. And Yahweh turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt Three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve Yahweh. Your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve Yahweh our God. And we do not know with what we must serve Yahweh until we arrive there. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth, and we confess that your word is the truth. We pray, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. When I first started typing my sermon manuscript out this week, the first line I wrote for my introduction was this, when I was a kid, I loved Indiana Jones. But then I thought, who am I kidding? 
I still love Indiana Jones. There's a scene in the second Indiana Jones, 1984's uh, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, which perfectly encapsulates Exodus 10 for us, at least in an illustration. In this scene, Indy and his little sidekick, Short Round, are walking, they're exploring this uh, massive Asian uh, temple that they're in, and they find themselves in a dark uh, tunnel, a dark tunnel of this Asian palace. And as they're trepidatiously moving through the darkness, they are hearing and they are feeling a, like a crunching sound under their feet. And so in an effort to investigate what's underfoot, literally, Dr. Jones strikes a match and the light reveals that the floor and the wall and the ceiling and everything is completely coated with insects, with massive, gross insects. As we are trepidatiously moving through Exodus chapter 10, through these the eighth and ninth plagues, or strikes, as we've noted, uh, we are finding two things here, aren't we? We're finding bugs and darkness, locusts and darkness. And as we have surveyed all of the strikes or plagues against Egypt over the last month or so, the point of these plagues, the point of these strikes of judgment has been consistent. Uh, the idolatry and the oppression um, of the Egyptians, they make idols, they don't worship the true God, and they're oppressing the Hebrews by enslaving them. Their idolatry and their oppression yield God's judgment, and God's judgment for, for them is death, ultimately. The destruction and darkness that we see in Exodus chapter 10 epitomizes death. And death is the consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death. It is only through God's Son, Jesus Christ, that we find alleviation, that we find salvation from sin and its consequences. And so Egypt, as a representative of the kingdoms of this world, of the seed of the serpent as what uh, Augustine called the city of man, Egypt is showing us that all of the kingdoms of this world are marked by destruction, darkness, and death. But the kingdom of Christ, the seed of the woman, is marked by light and life. So the kingdoms of this world are marked by destruction, darkness, and death. The kingdom of Christ is marked by light and life. Pharaoh's kingdom is confronted once again here in Exodus chapter 10. The first thing that we notice here is, uh, as, as the Lord speaks to Moses, is he's showing him or revealing to him the generational realities of sin and salvation. Sin and salvation have generational realities. We're clued in on this by the wordplay. I don't know if you noticed it, the wordplay between verse 2 and verse 6. 
So in verse 2, the Lord says to, said to Moses, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am Yahweh. Verse, uh, verse 6 says, or is it verse 6? Yeah, I think it's verse 6. Let me see here. Verse 6, yeah, he says, It'll fill their houses and all their servants as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen. So do you notice that? In verse 2, it says, You're going to tell your sons and your grandsons how I've dealt with the Egyptians. And then in verse 6, he says, Your fathers and your grandfathers have never seen locusts like I'm about to send you. So he's comparing and contrasting the two here. There's, there's a little wordplay going on. And the point is that sin and salvation have generational realities. Uh, beside the fact that these verses are giving us an accurate historical description of, number one, how bad the locust plague was, and number two, how the people would be discussing it afterward, right? Those are, those are historical realities that actually happened, but that's not merely the point of the text, right? There's also a theological and ethical point being made here, namely that both sin and salvation can have generational consequences. Both sin and salvation can have generational consequences. Later in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai, when Yahweh gives the Ten Commandments, he will say this in the second commandment. You shall not bow down to images or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. Now listen, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Generational consequences for sin. Uh, you can also see Exodus 34, verse 7, Numbers 14, verse 18, Deuteronomy 5, 9, just to name a few. And you've seen that in your life, haven't you? We've, we've seen that, whether it's in family or friends or neighbors or here at church, that sins like abuse, addiction, adultery, other sins can be passed on through generations. And if those specific sins aren't passed down, then oftentimes the trauma of those sins are passed down through generation. Last week at our monthly men's breakfast, Drew McGuire reminded us that the saddest of all generational sins is unbelief, to reject the gospel, for that is the only sin with eternal consequences. Scripture warns us to keep a close watch on our lives. Why? In part because sin can have effects for generations. But the scripture also tells us that God's grace can break through and salvation can have generational effect as well. Listen to Psalm 103, verse 17. The steadfast love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness is to children's children. Deuteronomy 7, 9, know therefore that Yahweh is your God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. 
Think of the first century elder, Timothy, who inherited his faith from his mother and his grandmother. 2 Timothy 1.5. Many of us here in this room this morning have inherited our faith from our fathers and our mothers, from our grandfathers and our grandmothers. Others here this morning are first-generation Christians. We thank God for first-generation believers. We praise God for first-generation believers. But that's not the goal. That's not the goal for Christians. The mission of Christianity is to make disciples, and that starts at home. Parents must be teaching our children of Jesus. Bringing them to church is essential. Before I give you the but, let me just say that again. Bringing them to church is essential. But it's not enough. It's not a box that you check once a week. Discipling your children, evangelizing your children, catechizing your children is a daily discipline. Read scripture with them. Pray with them. Discipline them. Let's say that one again too. Discipline them. Repent in front of them. Repent to them. In Exodus chapter 10, Yahweh commands Israel to tell their sons and their grandsons of the judgment and salvation of God. And we must do the same. Generational consequences for sin and salvation. The generations of Israel will understand God's judgment against the Egyptians, and they will understand it clearly. But in Exodus chapter 10, Pharaoh still isn't getting it. Even Pharaoh's servants are finally getting the point, and Pharaoh does not get it. In verse 7, look at it, they entreat Pharaoh. They say, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? They're like, I mean, let me give you a modern translation. They're like, bro, how do you not get this yet? Does everyone have to die before you understand that you should just let these people go? Even Pharaoh's servants get it. The Egyptians have endured seven strikes so far, seven plagues, and Pharaoh's heart is still hard as Moses and Aaron come to warn him of the locusts. Pharaoh's servants want Pharaoh to acquiesce to Moses so that the nightmare would just end. What a healthy reminder to us that because of common grace and because of the reality that all people bear the image of God, someone doesn't have to be a believer or even necessarily have to have pure motives for them to give good advice. Uh, Best we can tell, these servants don't trust in Yahweh. And their motives are far from pure. They just want their stuff to be okay. But they're not wrong, right? They're like, man, let them go. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, 
but a wise man listens to advice. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Pastor Kevin often quotes this sage advice he got from his father. He said, God gave you two ears and one mouth, so listen twice as much as you speak. It's a good word. At this point here in Exodus 10, it appears that Pharaoh may indeed heed the advice of his servants. He says he will let the men of Israel go and worship. But Moses says, no, everyone must go. The men, the women, the children, the animals, everyone must go. And at that point, Pharaoh doubles down and he sends them away. Get out of my sight. So then Moses obeys the Lord. He stretches his staff out over the land of Egypt and Yahweh sent an east wind carrying more locusts than Egypt had ever seen or will ever seen. see. Will ever see. Yes, Linda had her hand up back there. Good call. Thank you. I don't know if you remember this. In our sermon on Pentecost Sunday, we noted that in Scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, that going east often symbolizes sin. So after Adam fell in sin, God drove him east of Eden. Genesis 3, 23 through 24. After Cain murdered Abel, Cain settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden, Genesis 4, 16. After the flood, Yahweh commanded Noah, he recapitulated the command to Adam, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But the people migrated east and settled in the land of Shinar instead of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, Genesis eleven two. Now, in Exodus chapter 10, Yahweh brings this eighth judgment, the locusts, and he carries them on an east wind. When the judgment is over, he carries them away on a west wind. Like every ancient civilization, the Egyptians dreaded locusts. They had gods or idols that they looked to for protection from locusts just as the other plagues or the other strikes, this eighth strike is once again judgment on Egypt's idols. We've been noting that all the way through, that each of the plagues is representing a judgment on one of the idols or gods gods that they're worshiping. We mentioned last week, uh, Newt was the sky goddess and Osiris was the god of crops and fertility. And yet both of these gods or both of these idols are curiously absent as Yahweh rains down destruction on their crops from the sky in the form of locusts. The Egyptians also worshipped a god named Set. He was the god of storms and disorder. But just as Newt can't protect the Egyptians from the locusts in the sky, and just as Osiris can't protect what's left of their crops, so Set cannot protect or stop the disorder being brought on by the judgment of God. Much like Elijah on the mountain 
who says, where are your gods? Are they using the restroom? Where are the Egyptian gods? The Egyptians love them and serve them and worship them. Where are they? In the wake of the locust destruction, Pharaoh once again expresses remorse for his sin. It's not genuine repentance, but it's remorse. Pharaoh says, I have sinned against Yahweh your God. Plead with Yahweh your God only to remove this death from me. It's remorse. But once again, we see, just as we did last week, this is not genuine repentance. He expresses remorse for the consequences of his sin, he being Pharaoh. Genuine repentance happens after the Holy Spirit changes your heart. We talked about that some in our Bible class this morning. After regeneration, after the Holy Spirit takes your heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, after the Holy Spirit raises your heart from the dead, then you truly repent and turn from your sin. You acknowledge that God is holy and that you are sinful. You confess your sins, as Pastor Brett led us in just a few minutes ago. That is not what Pharaoh is doing here. Verse 20 says that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. Pharaoh persists in his sin and so Yahweh strikes Egypt for a ninth time. Here, as we saw with some of the other plagues, Moses doesn't even go to Pharaoh. It just says that Moses stretched his hand out. This is starting in verse uh, 21. Yahweh said to Moses, stretch your hand out toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Darkness covers Egypt for three days. Except for where the Hebrews lived in Goshen, it is still light there. Pharaoh once again intimates that Israel can leave until Moses said that the animals must come too. And at that point, Pharaoh tells Moses that if he sees his face again, Moses will be dead. The ninth strike of darkness would be the most shocking yet to the Egyptians, as it is one, or as it is a judgment, or was a judgment, on one of their most venerated idols. Besides Pharaoh, okay, Pharaoh's number one, he's at the top. Besides Pharaoh, the most worshipped idol in Egypt was the sun. They worshipped the sun in the sky, represented by the sun god, Ray. But Ray, like the other idols, here is rendered impotent as Yahweh covered the land of Egypt with darkness. The text says it's a darkness so palpable that it could be felt. On one of our many family vacations to the Smoky Mountains as a kid, on one of these, we took a tour of the Forbidden Caverns. When we were down in the caverns, in the heart of the cave, the tour guide warned us that 
he was going to turn the lights out for a minute and that we would experience darkness like we had never felt before. I don't know if this is possible, but I seem to recollect that in that cavern, when the lights went out, it was, like, it was darker than even when you close your eyes t- as tight as you can. You know, the darkness. That you- I don't know how that's possible, but that's how it felt. It was, it was a darkness you can feel. And in Yahweh's judgment of the sun god Ray, that kind of darkness covered the land of Egypt. It was a darkness you could feel, so much so that nobody left their house for three days. Yahweh is revealing to the Egyptians who are worshiping the sun that he is the creator and Lord of the sun. Genesis 1 tells us, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Genesis 1.3. On the fourth day, as Yahweh orders creation, he creates the sun to contain the light. Genesis 1.14 through 19. So they're worshiping what didn't even exist till day four. In the fullness of time, the Son of God took on flesh in the incarnation, and, the sh- and, and what he did was he shined the true light of God's salvation in the world. Listen to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So listen, John's recapitulating Genesis language here to talk about Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, as we, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Egyptians worshipped the Son, S-U-N, but we worship the Son of God, S-O-N, who is the light of the world. The Son of God became incarnate, and his name is Jesus Christ. He lived without sin, Hebrews 4.15, and then he died on a Roman cross as the penal substitutionary atonement for the sins of his people. And as Christ died on the cross, we read that the ninth plague or the ninth strike in a way is recapitulated. Pastor Mike read from Matthew 27 in our call to worship. And Matthew tells us that for three hours before Jesus died, that the whole earth was covered in darkness. The earth was covered in darkness as the wrath of God was being poured out on his son for the sins of his people. It's almost like as as God is pouring his wrath out on his son, Jesus, the world is is thrown back into the chaos of the pre-light Genesis 1 when there was void and there was darkness. The world itself goes dark as it bows its head in shame, as its creator and sustainer is dying for the sins of his people. 
And just as it was dark in Egypt for three days, this darkness on the cross begins a three, three days of darkness for Jesus through his death, through his burial. But as the light shined on the first day of creation in Genesis 1, the light shined again on the first day of the new creation. As Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb, resurrected from the dead on the very first Easter Sunday. Church, that's why we're here this morning. That's why we gather every single Sunday. Every Sunday morning, it's the first thing we do in our week because the new creation started on Sunday morning. The world began to turn on that first Sunday when Jesus Christ took that first step out of the tomb and with that first step, he indeed crushed the head of Satan. And now everyone who will take Christ by faith will receive the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Faith, what is faith, you say? Faith is comprised of three things, knowledge, assent, and trust. To have faith, you must first possess knowledge, namely the knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And we just explained all that. But that's not enough. You must also assent to the validity of these truth claims. You can't merely know facts about Jesus. You must also actually think they're true. But even that's not enough because you must finally transfer your trust to Christ alone. If you trust in Christ alone, it is proof then that the Holy Spirit has changed your heart. And if the Holy Spirit has changed your heart, he will sanctify you. Another way to say that is that the Holy Spirit will cause you to walk in the light. Earlier, when we did our confession and pardon, Pastor Brett read from 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Listen to the verses that precede those two verses. In 1 John 1, 5, it says, This is the message we heard from him, that's from Jesus, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin." Jesus is the light of the world, and those who follow Jesus walk in the light. Just as the Hebrews had light in Goshen while the Egyptians experienced darkness, there is darkness all around us, church. But we walk in the light because Jesus took the darkness for us. Jesus experienced the darkness of God's wrath for our sins so that we don't have to. I saw one person put on Twitter this week for Christians to take heart, regardless of whatever trials or tribulations we experience in this life, that is the closest to hell that we will ever experience. Why? Because Jesus took hell for us. Jesus took God's wrath for us and the proof that we follow Jesus the proof that we walk in the light, John says, is that we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with one another. This was the Egyptians' problem. 
They rejected God for idols, worshiping the creation and not the creator, and they oppressed their neighbors through slavery. They did not love God. They did not love neighbor. They did not have fellowship with God. They did not have fellowship with neighbor. And they were in darkness, both metaphorically and literally. But as Christians, we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with each other and this proves that we are walking in the light. Are you worshiping God rightly by submitting to the means of grace weekly here at church? Do you have fellowship with God through confession of sin? Do you have fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we repenting to each other and forgiving each other when we sin against each other? I mean, we pray that Christ Community Church will continue to be a gospel lighthouse here at the corner of 14 and Van Dyke in the midst of this dark world. Unlike myself, the bugs or the darkness really didn't seem to bother Indiana Jones that much. Um, Indiana, Indiana Jones, or Dr. Jones, if you will, is only afraid of one thing. You guys know what that is? Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? I guess in that sense, Exodus 10 does differ from that scene in the Temple of Doom because there was no snakes, there weren't any snakes in the tunnel, but in Exodus 10, there is a serpent. Pharaoh stands in line with the seed of the serpent and Yahweh is crushing his head through these strikes. This is pointing us forward to his son, Jesus, and darkness and death will be crushed finally and fully through the life of death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 John, we just mentioned this, the apostle calls us to walk in the light as Christ is in the light. And in that same epistle, in chapter 3, John gives us the hope of the second coming of Christ. Pharaoh told Moses, the day that you see my face, again, you will die. But John tells us that the day that we see Jesus' face, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. That's only true if you're trusting in Jesus. Trust in Jesus because in him alone you will find light and you will find life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that your word would be effective in the hearts of these hearers. Father, we ask for those in the room who are not trusting in Jesus, that your Holy Spirit will open their eyes to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and that they will repent of their sin and that they will believe in the gospel. Father, we ask for your church, for your people who 
are trusting in your son, that you would sanctify us through Exodus 10 this morning, that you would sanctify us through the sacrament as we remember and proclaim that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is the light of the world, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.